Given that that's 25% men, 75% women, the prevalence amongst women is up at around 10 to 15%. Shocking, really shocking. Okay, so I'm gonna move on to what we're talking about today, which is uh, the long-term plan. Um, you will have seen uh, that we were expecting to have Claire here, who has been leading the process of the long-term plan. But I'm, I'm sorry to say that there has been a crisis back at the, uh, at the ranch. So she's unable to join us today um, and sends her sincere apologies. We do have Paul Farmer, um, uh, who is, as you know, Chief Executive of Mind, um, and he's lots and lots of other things, including you know, a CBE and honorary uh, doctorate of science from the University of East London. My gosh. Um, and then we've got Wendy Burns, president of the Royal College. Everyone will know her. Um, and we've got Adrian James, and everyone will know Adrian because he's co-chair and roving reporter for, the, for, for this show. Now, instead of Claire, we've got Amelie. And what's your How do you say the surname? Barges. Barge. Barge. It's rather, rather like the wine, lynch barge. Exactly. It is, it's isn't it? It's the same thing. Yes, yes. Now, Amelie is the sort of architect in the shadows. So I'm going to ask um, <laughs> Amelie if she can just talk us through. Now, Amelie, in the, in, in the long-term plan, um, I know we've, we've absorbed some, you know, some of the five-year forward, like the green paper and stuff, but what, what, what are we doing in the long-term plan for children? So I think the main thing in the long-term plan is that we are planning to continue the expansion of access for children. And we are planning to do that by expanding the age range that the services will cover. So going from zero, year, zero to 25 years old. And that's really to try to address the kind of cliff that some uh, children and young people were facing when they reached 18 and were kind of transitioned sometimes not very successfully to adult services, so that's one of the main things. We are continuing, obviously, the delivery of the green paper, but we're also trying to put the crisis services for children at an equivalent level um, to the ambition for adult crisis services and rolling that out to cover 100% of the country by 23-24. Fantastic. Now, you said 0 to 25, so presumably that includes perinatal services? So we also have an ambition for perinatal, which obviously overlap with the, the CYP um, ambition. And so for perinatal, we have, as part of the 5 year review, which national coverage of our kind of services, and we are now going to expand um, the, the number of women accessing the services, so everybody who needs it has access to the services not only for one year, but for two years, because we know that the kind of end of the first year period, postnatal period, is often like a very difficult period for women, so we want to expand the care to two years. And finally, we are doing two other things. First one is we want to provide help for partners when they need it. And secondly, we are linking uh, the perinatal mental health services with a kind of um, other NHS services to make sure that the link between the two uh, are stronger and that women that may not have been signposted to perinatal mental health services have access to services if they need it in mat maternities, etc. Fantastic. Okay, and then let's move on to probably one of the biggest changes in the, in the, um, in the history of, of mental health, which is about adults 
with moderate to severe mental health problems. And, and what does that cover? Yes, so this is like one of the main components of the plan. And the reason for giving such prominence to that is because that's an area that hadn't necessarily been at the centre of the five-year forward view. And all of the engagement we've done for the long-term plan you know, really showed that there was a strong support to develop the services in the community mental health teams and for adults with severe mental illness. So this is one of the services that will require the most development thinking in the coming two years. We are going to strengthen the CMHTs, align them with primary care network, and also strengthen the, the, the work between CMHTs and secondary mental health care so that um, people with serious mental illness have access to kind of step up and step down care covering additive disorder, personality disorders, etc., and more um, and, and care in primary care too when they need it. So it's really redesigning entirely how we provide services for people with serious mental illnesses and trying to cover again 100% of the country by 2324. Um, now, one of, one of the things that was brought up at the yes. public, uh, I can't say it, Public Administration Constitutional Affairs Committee, mm -hmm. and, and they kept saying, so um, when are you going to be introducing a four-week wait for eating disorders mm -hmm. in adults? What, what actually are we going to do about waiting time? So we are rolling this uh, program of like support for adults with uh, serious mental health disorder progressively because we really want first to see how we can redefine the way the services flow before rolling that out. And the waiting time will be tested as part of this piloting in the first two years to see what is meaningful because we don't want to create uh, perverse incentives to, or, and we don't want to recreate also a system where you have referrals, etc. What we're trying to do is to effectively remove this kind of referring in and out of services. So we're testing that out in the first two years and then based on evidence, we'll decide what is meaningful. Now, I know that the long-term plan has a lot of other stuff in it, like we're gonna carry on with suicide reduction programs. Um, you know, we're gonna do lots of stuff on workforce, um, that we've got lo lots and lots of commitments, but uh, which we don't really have time to cover. But what about crisis? Everyone's going to want to know that's a big part of what we're going to do. What are we going to do about crisis? Yes, so I touched upon it a bit uh, in my answer about children and young people. So the first thing is we're ensuring that the building blocks are in place for both adults and children. So our five-year forward view commitment for adults was to put in place crisis and home treatment uh, teams across the country. So we need to do that by 2021 and make sure these services are robust and funded to, like, sustainably. We are going to do the same for children, so we're going to develop these services across the country. Furthermore, the long-term plan adds uh, the development of additional services for adults and children and young people when this is relevant. So putting in place, place um, um, sanctuaries and cafes as uh, alternative to uh, A&E attendances, for example. Uh, putting in place crisis houses may be more suited for uh, inpatient care. Um, upskilling the staff uh, in the ambulance services and providing mental health dedicated ambulance uh, services to really strengthen the reply to crisis for people with mental health. And finally, and this is linked with our, with our suicide reduction ambition, providing suicide bereavement support for service users, staff um, in the NHS also. Fantastic. And you sort of think, okay, so there's two point, at least £2.3 billion per year 
by 2023-24, and Sheffield, my hometown, is 1% of the population of England. That's £23 million extra per year. That is a phenomenal increase in spend. So now we're, we're going to be producing an implementation plan, which will be out sometime in the next few weeks. Can't say exactly, but yeah, we've got to get it right. Um, we will then be asking localities to respond and come back with their plans. This money is ring-fenced. We will want to see £22.3 billion coming back in the bottom line of what people are going to spend. So that's, that's the good, good news. Now, um, I'm going to ask Paul, can you tell us from your perspective, what's, what's the long-term plan mean? What's it, what's it all about? Well, Tim, uh, some, some of the people on this call will remember, with long memories, will remember that we, when we constructed the five-year full review for mental health, uh, with a huge amount of involvement of many, many people, one of the things we put right at the very end of the long-term, of, of the five-year full review for mental health was the importance of having a, a clear plan for what happens after the five-year full review. And so by complete, obviously, fantastic planning, or actually, more accurately, a bit of luck, uh, we, uh, we indeed have that that in in the form of the long-term plan so effectively the end of the five-year four review morphs into the long-term plan so that's my first uh, uh, real opportunity for this this embeds uh, real change inside mental health services and we know that in the early days of the long of the five-year four review people were a bit worried about whether the, the money was there to stay whether there sure. was proper commitment so you know this sends a really clear message to everyone that this is meaningful investment in uh, mental health services and there's a and, promise for growth for 10 years yeah there? it's a long-term promise and inside the tiny small print is a very explicit commitment by the by the government it's hardwired into government that uh, uh, mental health spend proportionately will will increase proportionately positively compared to spend on uh, physical health services so there is a, a long-term commitment to that which is why we talk about the at least 2.3 billion as opposed to just the 2.3 billion. I think the second big opportunity is the uh, is this kind of hardwiring, mainstreaming mental health into the NHS, and you know everybody knows how uh, for how long it feels as though mental health services have kind of sat on one side of the system, and you know th there's a really important, you know, significant chunks of the long-term plan that you've heard from Emily uh, already, uh, but the long-term plan is peppered with references to mental health in the prevention section, in the workforce section, in, in, in the research section. So, so this, is, this is a kind of an important moment for hardwiring uh, and mainstreaming mental health. And then uh, uh, the kind of final opportunity with these local engagement plans is to work across uh, the, the, the mental health community, work across with voluntary sector organisations and others to really make this work. A couple of risks, if yep, I may. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, I think there's a big risk about workforce. Uh, you know, uh, can we actually structure a workforce approach that gives them lots of people who want to come and work in mental health the best way to get in to do that? Uh, secondly, uh, the rest of government, uh, the, the long-term plan is obviously about the mental health but it doesn't do anything for what the rest of government does. And we all know that government can, that government policy can have a pretty detrimental effect on the country's mental health. So welfare is the most obvious side of that. But Brexit but, might be a Well, problem. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> but, you know. Uh, uh, thirdly, uh, as ever with uh, plans, money at the top, does that translate into money in local services? And I think that's a critical dimension to this. 
Um, and I think actually in the local implementation planning phase, it's going to be really important for mental, local mental health communities to get together and talk about what they really want from this implementation plan, engage people with lived experience, voluntary organisations, but also engage with the rest of the NHS as they deliver, construct the rest of their of the local implementation plans to make sure that mental health is woven through the other plans, the primary care, the acute plans as well. And I think unless that happens, you know, there's a, there's always a danger of of a kind of separation, you know, a kind of mental health Brexit moment, you know, where we're sat, sat on, in an island somewhere. We need to be mainstreamed inside the whole system. No, I agree. And, uh, you know, I, I want to reiterate, the long-term plan expects localities to come up with their own plans to make this work. We can provide a recipe, yeah, but that recipe is going to look very different in different places, but they will be expected to achieve the outcomes we're setting out. So we need our leaders, our medical directs, our chief executives, our chief nurses, and our directs of finance, you know, and clinical directors. Everybody needs to start thinking, how do you make this work in your trust? How do you make this work in your locality? And we can, think, we can all think about people, patients and families who we've worked with where we, we know we could make a really big difference if only we had the right resources in place yeah. and the right pathways and the right structures. And this is the opportunity for those people for us to make a real difference. Fantastic. Now, um, Wendy, President of the Royal College, <laughs> leader of the free world. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us from your perspective, what, what, what's the long-term plan? So I just want to start off by saying how pleased the college was um, with the long-term plan. We did a lot of work on um, influencing. We were pleased to see lots of things we'd suggested um, appear. Uh, you, did, you did a quite a, a big did. submission that yeah. was really quite rich in detailed we content. Yes. And we were obviously hoping that the whole thing would be copied and pasted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> bits, bits, appeared, bits appeared, which yeah. we, were, we were really um, pleased with. And just want to say thanks to Paul um, and to Claire, who couldn't be here for all the work that they did, because it's been fantastic. And mental health goes right through the long-term plan. So we have our own sections, but it's nice to see it, it woven through. So we're really pleased with it. But... The proof of the pudding is in the eating, um, cool. and now we've, we've got to deliver it, and we mustn't forget the end of the five-year forward view. Uh, and as Paul says, his group is going to um, change into the delivery for long-term plan, so that's perfect, so we're not going to drop the ball. So just for the listeners, Paul's group is the independent oversight group who are monitoring the impact uh, and the, the, you know, the, the real translation of, uh, of the five-year forward view and now the long-term plan into what happens on the ground. Yeah. So Carry really, on, really important to yeah. my, um, And you're part sit of on that. Group, yeah. Yeah. Sit on yeah. that group. Thank yeah. goodness. So, that's, yeah. <laughs> um, so as Paul's already said, the main challenge is, is workforce. I think everybody knows that the, the challenge is, is workforce. I have had a um, sneak preview of the people plan, which I think is going to be published fairly shortly. Um, and actually, slightly to my amazement, there's been a lot of consultation and I sat a lot of, on a lot of the groups. They actually seem to have listened um, to what we said and stuff that I heard said in the groups is, is in the plan. Um, I mean, it's, it's not finished yet and it may change, but it will change from the version I saw, but the one I saw looked good. Um, and it had some quite practical things in it about how we change things, how we improve things for people who um, work in the, in the NHS, because we've got to do something about um, retention. We've done a lot on recruitment and recruitment has, has improved 
Um, so we've just looked at the numbers of CT1s that are going to start in August, um, and for th at this point in time we've got the most that we've um, ever had since we started counting. We've still got another recruitment round um, to, to uh, finish, but that's looking good. Mm, so recruitment's true. improving, mm, but yeah. retention, as everybody knows, um, is a problem. And there's lots of stuff in the People's Plan that I think will um, um, we'll look at that. Uh, quite sort of practical stuff. Um, so practical ways in which we can show that we value our staff, like computers that work and car parks, um, <laughs> which I go on and on about. But those are really, really important things. If you can't park your car, it's a really bad start to the um, to the day. Uh, but also things about culture, which are going to be more difficult. But I think we we can do it. We need to change the the culture within the within the NHS so it feels a more comfortable um, place to be. And the other bit around um, workforce psychiatrists, we're still working out how many psychiatrists we would need to deliver the long-term plan, but we know already that we haven't got enough. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at other bits of the uh, workforce. Um, and I'm uh, suggesting that people look at peer support workers, and they are actually expanding. I've travelled about the country a lot, um, visiting trusts, peer support workers are expanding. I'm meeting them, people speak really highly of them, um, beginning to develop training programmes for them and physicians associates, really keen on physicians associates. Interestingly, I was dean when they were first mentioned, and I went, oh, over my dead body, they'll steal our jobs. And, but actually, <laughs> <laughs> I've changed my mind. <laughs> There's plenty of work for everybody. Yeah. And again, everywhere that I've been where I've seen physicians associates working, they've been really highly valued. I haven't met a single psychiatrist who hasn't valued the physicians associate. And I've said to them, you know, email me afterwards if you're just feeling you can't say something in front of a group. But everybody says that they're wonderful. What we do need to do and what trust medical directors can really help with is their placements. Um, I, there's, because there are so many medical students and other people coming through trust, they're not always the highest priority. But if we want to get good people in, in the workforce, we're going to have to offer good placements. So I would really um, ask medical directors to have a look at that. And I know in Sheffield... They're doing a lot of work on that and they've got some really good placements. Yeah, going. it's true, it's true. Um, so in, in summary, we really welcome the long-term plan but recognise the challenges of implementing it. We're all going to have to work really hard together um, to get it done. And can I just use this opportunity to remind CEOs and medical directors that they've all been invited to a day at the college on the 10th of October. So That's World there. Mental Health Day. Who is it? Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. World Mental Health Day. At so, um, at the college, see you all there. I and think and be... Simon Stevens uh, last week agreed to, uh, to speak at that, so we nobbled him over breakfast. Fantastic. Great. Okay, now, one of the, one of the things that everybody says, and when I, when I, years ago, it must be a decade ago, doing the service user experience, improving service user experience in adult mental health, they came to the view that once you decided that you wanted to see a psychiatrist or see you know, a psychologist, they wanted to be seen within three weeks. And uh, we know that we've, we've, we've started to introduce some waiting times. And we know that, from as Amelie said, that we're going to be trialling out how we can do that in community mental health to, to do some four-week waits. But I just wanted to bring your attention to one trust that... Adrian has been in touch with, who actually have been doing a four-week waiting time for all of CAMS. Oh, that's right, uh, Tim. So this is Sussex Partnership NHS Foundation Trust, and I've been speaking to Alison Wallace, who's the clinical director for CAMS, and Ruth Hillman, who is the operations director. So what have they done? They've developed 
a job planning and caseload monitoring tool linked to capacity and flow. Now I know that may not sound sort of riveting stuff, but it's absolutely key mm. to the delivery of uh, some of the waiting times and the long-term plan. So what does it enable you? Well, what can you do? You can understand your capacity and flow. You can link it to job planning and caseload management. And it enables a conversation with commissioners about what they're putting in financially and what they'll get out the other end, and also with staff, and it makes it all explicit and, and open. So, you know, where does this all start? Would you start with, well, what are your challenges? So the general challenges in the service, the waiting list, a target, four weeks in this case, uh, the volume of your referrals going up or down. Uh, we know they're generally going up. So what are the resources and how do you deploy them? And in order to meet your challenges, what is the investment that you need? So the financial investment, the workforce investment, uh, what's the return you're going to get? And what's going to be the impact on your waiting list and on your targets? So managing patient flow, and it's clear and explicit. So what were their challenges? Well, they had increased demand, uh, increase in referrals, their waiting lists were going up, they introduced the, the four-week target, um, and there was also concern about prioritisation on the waiting list, that making sure that your people who are most high risk and the greatest need were, were being prioritised and weren't just being uh, left. So uh, they had a capacity and flow tool, and then in March 2017, they developed a job planning um, and, uh, uh, and uh, work workforce tool. They tested it, they implemented it, um, and it prompts a discussion about caseload, case mix, uh, have you got too many referrals? Uh, what's the complexity of the people that you're seeing? It also enables staff to talk about how they feel about their caseload. So it's not just about numbers, and of course it is uh, about uh, people, and actually there's been work on uh, uh, user feedback as to what, what they feel about it. And as you say, uh, it's users, this is driven by users, because they actually, they want to be seen quickly and very uh, understandably. So you can estimate with the tool uh, how many uh, new assessments that you can see, uh, and who can actually do them, and so it informs your decisions about capacity and demand. So, um, and it, it also uh, starts a conversation about what support is necessary for people to actually move on from the, the, the waiting list. So what are the other things uh, that need to be done? So in terms of commissioners, um, it's, it can be very challenging for commissioners to understand uh, the dynamics around a waiting list. Uh, I was given the example that, you know, if you're on the motorway, as I was late last night, you know, you close one lane, what's the overall impact? You know, if you close two lanes, and how quickly does it clear afterwards? People often expect you have an injection of money and resource, everything is suddenly sorted. But it's just not like that, and this tool allows you to sort of deconstruct your uh, your waiting list. So this basically means that, that if we bring in waiting times that we want to achieve, we're going to have to manage patient flow in the same way as I think you need to manage patient flow through inpatient units to get rid of out of area placements. That you've got you've got to make sure that that you know you, you, you don't allow two lanes to be blocked at once. Uh, that's absolutely right, and I, I think the impact was that in Sussex they did hit a four-week uh, target. Uh, it's it's subsequently uh, drifted away from that. Now this the tool isn't magic. It enables you to have a conversation with your staff 
and with commissioners as to if you give this amount of money, how it can be deployed. Uh, it gives a lot of assurance, both internal, external, as to what's actually going to happen. And the tool has actually demonstrated that when you actually say things are going to happen, it does actually happen. And it's not about um, just pushing people through the system. It's very important that actually uh, you, you look at actually the service that you know, service users uh, are getting and you actually look at the support that's necessary in the skill mix within the team. Okay, now I would guess that they had some significant investment um, for, for that to happen, which I sort of secretly know they did. <laughs> uh, well, they had a, a bit of investment, but actually not a, not a major a, amount. They're in dialogue. I did push them as to what's actually happening now. They're in uh, a dialogue with the commissioners at the moment. They're optimistic that actually the fact that they've shown that this can work and the commissioners have confidence in what they'll actually get from investment, that they will have significantly more investment coming fairly shortly, but they, they couldn't be pressed too hard on that. So I think it's, I, I would really recommend that people actually look at the tool, actually go down to Sussex and actually interrogate it, um, understand it. It's, it's sort of thing, it's difficult to describe over the, the air, air, airways, but um, it's something you need to go and actually see. Uh, NHS England, NHS Improvement have looked at the, the tool, the CQC uh, have highly commended it. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a really good example of how to do things, uh, do things properly. So good planning, money, all very, all very important. But um, one of the things I wanted to raise, and has been raised with um, by a number of, of, of people um, from questions that we've got, is workforce. Um, yeah, this is uh, um, Wendy. You've you've alluded to it. The the people plan by Dido Harding, which will be coming out in the next month or so. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, workforce, Paul. Well, what? What are we going to do about workforce? I mean, it's a massive increase in people working in mental health. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think we're all, everybody agrees that this is the biggest challenge, whether it's having uh, effect, really effective mechanisms for recruiting significant numbers of people into the mental health workforce, and as Wendy quite rightly says, uh, really helping and supporting people to stay in the workforce, because we spend a huge amount of money in training and recruiting and training people, and so it's an extraordinary, you know, waste, fun frankly, waste of money if people are then not supported to stay in that workforce. So there's two really key elements. I'm very encouraged that Wendy's sneak preview of the People Report suggests that both are being attended to, um, but I think there's a couple of things that uh, that we need to really, th we, you know, really need to kind of focus on. And the first one is the, the moment in time. Now, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we know from all the work we've done in in Times Change and other campaigns that the views and attitudes of young people about mental health are totally different to the views of people who aren't too young. And um, uh, <laughs> no implication there. No, none whatsoever. Uh, but we know that there is no barrier to people wanting to come and work in mental health in yeah. the same way as there might be. There's less stigma. And we know from, for example, um, uh, 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 Think Ahead, which is a kind of test uh, graduate, kind of teach first equivalent for social mental health social work. They have a hundred places uh, for graduates coming into mental health social work. They had nineteen thousand applications. Wow. So we're losing eighteen thousand nine hundred people to uh, you know just disappear and go off and do other things. And uh, so, so this is why roles like the physician associate that Wendy mentioned, peer support workers. Um, other roles that open up the ability for more young people to come and work, and not just young.
young people, people with their own lived experience, people bring life experience back into working in mental health. And then the second piece is about retention. And you know, I think the last time I was here, we were talking about the Thriving at Work report, the, uh, the you know, really important piece of work that, that highlighted you know, that the NHS lose, you know, the cost of poor mental health to the NHS is £2,000 per member of staff in the NHS per year. So, you know, that is a huge amount of money that is just, you know, and, and talent that is being lost because we're not looking after our people properly, just in grounds of mental health, let alone parking and functioning computers. So, so I think that the second part of this has to be a really strong piece looking at how do we uh, support the people who are working inside inside the NHS. Now, actually, I think this is all very doable, uh, but it needs leadership. Uh, you know, and you know, we've got some fantastic mental health trusts and, and trust leaders and medical directors who are leading the way in thinking about these issues. Uh, and, and I think, I think that's, where, you know, that's where the, 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 the kind of real opportunities, uh, opportunities exist. No, all very good. And I'm glad that you brought up leadership because you, you know, the, the, there are trusts where I, I, I have visited, I won't say where, um, where they just haven't got leadership right. They haven't got, and, and, it, and if I was to say what, what, what really captures you about really good leadership is the clinicians and the service users and the voluntary sector are all, they all have influence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think that's why, uh, you know, there's another opportunity. We know that sometimes this is hard to bring everybody together to have these conversations, but well-led organisations, uh, actually, you know, the, the best leaders are, you know, it's a horrible phrase, distributive leaders. They know their roles, but they also empower people. And in this context, in our world of mental health, that means empowering people with lived experience and families, uh, voluntary sector organisations, who I think that, and the door is completely open from our point of view to really engaging with us and others on, uh, uh, on, um, on the implement development of those local implementation plans and also with the staff inside, uh, in, inside, inside the trust. So absolutely, really big opportunity to use the kind of the conversations that are gonna happen about developing these local implementation plans to bring, bring that mental health community together to have a discussion about what, you know, how, do you, how do we help achieve those, you know, test those, test those, uh, those waiting time uh, targets, but also how do we really embed uh, the right kind of conversations inside mental health services more broadly and this is a really great opportunity to do that and I think the mood is absolutely there for for, for this to happen okay and when, and when you talk about leadership don't forget the psychiatrist absolutely so yeah. as I got down up and down the UK again I see psychiatrists who are frustrated we we select them for leadership um, promise we train them in leadership and then we don't actually give them a leadership role or allow them to solve problems on the ground and I don't think it's any coincidence that the trusts where psychiatrists are um, helping, I don't mean leading the whole trust, but where they're properly embedded in, in, in um, the leadership structure, often the CQC ratings are better. Yeah, so, yeah East yeah. London Foundation yes. Trust. Yeah. Naveen yeah. Roden. Yeah, I think I think yeah. Wendy's absolutely right. You know, that the the well the well led trust CQC is the benchmark, isn't it? So it's telling yeah. us that yeah. the outstanding trusts are the well led trusts and the well led trusts have a you know, a really broad view about good quality leadership, including clinical leadership, management, and, uh, if you like, customer involvement. Well, in, in, interestingly, I mean, uh, if, if you watch the way East London and NTW, and probably also Northampton, which is the oh, new, yes, the yeah. new yeah. outstanding trust, yes. um, that uh, the co-production 
is the start of all their development work. Yeah. So they do have clinicians. Yeah. They do have you know, managers involved, but they've got service users at the start. Yeah. Which is a beautiful thank you, Tim, for an opportunity to plug a piece of work that. Uh, a number of people on the oversight group, together with the uh, the college, have been working on around co-production in the development of planning. So that document, I think, has just been published, um, and it's been published deliberately in time to help local communities get co-production right. Uh, and it's been drawn from the very best of what already goes on around the country. And critically, the document itself has been co-produced. So you know that's exactly the kind of model that we've been trying to adopt, adapt in constructing the five-year forward view, the work we do on the oversight group. You know that's that we know that when you can get people together to create a shared purpose and a shared ambition, stuff really begins to happen. Yeah, but okay. But Wendy, ra- raising the issue about psychiatrists, I mean, it takes you know minimum six years to get someone from. FY2s, finish that, get into core training, and then out the other side. And I would guess that it takes another few years before you really feel confident as a leader. Yes. So what are we going to do between between now and and eight years' time? There are psychiatrists sitting there in the trust wanting to lead but feeling frustrated um, and not able to. So, you know, I think medical directors start, well, the medical directors will probably know who they are, but start the conversations, give the opportunities, um, give people projects, uh, let them feel that they've got some power to change things. Because I think that is what leads to psychiatrists getting fed up, disengaged and burnt out um, when they've been trained as leaders and then actually they find they can't, they can't alter anything. That's, um, a, that's a cultural issue, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah? yes. It's a culture which includes people. But there are some, I think, some really exciting opportunities. I work in a trust, a Devon partnership, that uh, is part of the new care models and secure commissioning. So uh, the commissioner now is a psychiatrist. And as Wendy says, that's a project. Uh, psychiatrists like problem solving. They like to get you know, their teeth into something. Yeah. And they, they, but they also like to look at the whole system, uh, take a responsibility for it, but actually have the ability to actually really make a difference. So, uh, and just a sort of plug for, you know, uh, mental you know, well-being week, uh, I went cycling with my commissioner, who happens to be a psychiatrist. So that's good for our sort of building up our relationship. No, <laughs> well, I would definitely not. You wouldn't push your commissioner off the... Uh, so Jason Fee, who leads the new care models, and uh, so we cycled home together, which was great, And but he is the commissioner, so he holds the budget for the whole of secure services in the southwest. He knows how the system works, and this, this is spreading across the whole country. It's obviously in CAMS already, and there, we're looking actually at things like um, uh, uh, locked rehabilitation, the huge number of people who are away from home uh, in, in locked units. So I think this is really exciting, and it's an opportunity for clinicians to get involved yes. in, uh, in leadership and, and to really sort of manage the system. Well, we are going to have a future meeting on bringing people back home. Mm. Because we have, we we have looked at that, and it is still a major major issue. Mm. So I won't go into it now, but it's a very very good point. Mm. What I do want to to bring up, because we've talked quite a lot about about secondary care, basically, Emily, primary care. 
You said as in your intro that we're going to get closer to primary care. Just, just say a bit more about that if you can. So across the country, there's a lot of work going on at the moment to develop uh, primary care networks, right? So these uh, are going to be one of the key delivery mechanisms of the future architecture of the systems. So you have the STPs, the integrated care systems, and within that, you have primary care networks that become like one of the substructure of the system. So one of our key ambition for services for people with serious mental illnesses is to rethink the way in which the community mental health teams are working to align them with the primary care network. So it's not so much about putting mental health staff in GP practices, but it's to make sure that we have links, that the network facilitate the works between GPs or the widest group of people working in the GP practice and the CMHTs. How we do that is going to be tested this year. So there's already some good practice example, but we need to kind of build the evidence space on how that can be done. So that's what we'll test on over the next two years before rolling it up. So a lot of testing coming up about about how we actually do this. Waiting times, integration with primary care, all jolly good. Now, um, we've had um, uh, had an email come through from Gene O'Hara, who very, very understandably said, please say something about learning disabilities in the long-term plan. And, and I have to confess, one of the things that, the, the, one of the problems we've got about national clinical directors is that you've got a, a, a limited remit and obviously, I don't cover um, uh, the learning disabilities, which Jean does. Um, but there is a chunk of stuff on learning disabilities, which includes um, mental health of people with uh, learning disabilities, but also stuff on prevention, crises, community support, improved inpatient care, and very much um, in line with what we're doing, reducing out-of-area placements. And they've also got stuff on cams. I mean, have you, have you had much to do with the LD stuff, Wendy? So um, I've had a look through it, and um, I actually spoke to the LD faculty about what was in what was in it a couple of, of weeks ago, and they're really keen on developing it. They're up and running with the ideas, but it's um, it's a challenge, um, the same challenge that the rest of us have, but they have even more of a workforce challenge. And learning disability nursing is in real trouble. We need to try and do something um, about that. Terms of recruitment. So, uh, what, what I mean, g given that nursing is a major issue across mental health as well, yes. we're all thinking what are the new types of roles, and we've heard from Paul saying stuff about bringing in service users, you know, or you know, people who've recovered that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they do that in learning disability. Right. So I asked them about peer support workers, and yes, they do use that as a model. Physicians associates would be perfect. Um, to work in, in those services. But I, I think they suffer from people actually not knowing that they exist. Um, we've been talking to H, because of our very successful recruitment campaign, we've been talking to HE about run, run, running a, a wider recruitment campaign because if you ask school leavers um, about careers available to them, they won't know about mental health nursing or learning disability nursing. So we need to try and get it no, out they there. Won't, won't no, they won't, they won't have heard of it. So we need to try and get it out there a bit more so that people know what the opportunities are. I was going to say, I mean, my, my, my youngest daughter is thinking about mental health nursing, um, but then she's surrounded by... Yes, but most people wouldn't know to No, that's true. That's absolutely true. I think, Tim, um, people with intellectual disability often have a range of problems, sort of complex needs, and I see uh, the integrated care systems as being 
sort of ideal sort of place to try to actually meet some of these challenges. And I think a whole range of challenges for people with intellectual disability should be high-level objectives for integrated care systems because they cut across mental health, physical health, uh, and the local authority. It's a whole bringing together of, of a complexity that that sort of system, if it can't sort out the needs of that particularly vulnerable group who we really need to redouble our efforts to actually uh, sort, um, if they can't do that, then what are they doing? Well, on that note, I think um, I think we should uh, draw things to a close. Let me say that um, learning disabilities are struggling with out-of-area placements like we are in mental health, like we are in a lot of our secure care where people are a long way from home because it's commissioned by NHS England. That's going to change. That will be all now put down to provider collaboratives. We've got locked rehab where we've got a programme of work that we're going to work with GERFT on. Um, we've talked about that. Um, but it remains a major issue across mental health. So, and that's for children, it's for people with learning disabilities, it's for adults, etc. So I'm pleased to say that next time uh, in June, our topic is going to be bringing people back home. And it's going to cover the full range of out of area placements and what we're going to do about them and what trusts, what chief executives, what medical directors can do. And we'll be highlighting, and Adrian will find them for us, areas where they've really done a good job with this. That's a big challenge. Okay, so, um, and, and that will, we're going to have Paul Elliott, who I don't know if you know, but Paul Elliott, as the Deputy Chief Inspector for. For, um, for hospitals, mental health, um, uh, who I've worked with for many years, is standing down and going off to drive his way around uh, India and the Stans for a period of a couple of years. Um, uh, so he will be joining us for the last time next time um, and we will have a number of others. So that leaves me to thank uh, Paul Farmer, Wendy Burns, Adrian James and Amelie Barge. Thank you all very much for everything and it's been a great time. See you next month. Thank you.